Welcome to the Edible Alpha podcast series, your source for actionable insights for making money in food. The Edible Alpha podcast is hosted by the Food Finance Institute, where our mission is to help food businesses raise the money they need to grow. Through our podcast, FFI staff talks to a wide range of stakeholders about what it really takes to grow a financially viable food or farm business. Hello, folks, and welcome to the Edible Alpha podcast. I'm Andy Larson, a farm financial consultant for the Food Finance Institute and also Wisconsin Small Business Development Centers. Today, I am super excited to be talking with Mark Bernard. He is co-founder and co-farmer at Rustic Road Farm in Elburn, Illinois, just a hop, skip, and a jump away from where I am, actually. Uh, Mark and his husband, Luis, raise open field and high tunnel produce heritage breed livestock, and bees on 18 acres just barely outside the western suburbs of Chicago. Uh, Also recently purchased a commercial kitchen where they're producing some value-added products. More about that in a minute. Mark, thank you so much for joining us on the Edible Alpha podcast. I I just can't believe anybody even wants to talk to me. This is like such an honor. (laughs) We're just a couple of guys that started out, made a lot of mistakes along the way, and 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 uh, you know we're are, are making it so we're we're pretty excited and i hope anything we have to say um can help somebody else cuz cuz we need more people doing what we're trying to do and and there's a demand too so it's it's great to be here we appreciate it well i got to tell you as a as a fellow farmer sometimes those mistakes are the most valuable things to hear about because they kind of become uh those landmines to avoid you know um, but I guess in that uh, in that line of thinking, why don't you provide us with just a little bit of uh, backstory about how you guys found your way into farming about a decade or so ago, and how have things changed? It's coming up in a decade, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, when we I, I, all my life, I've said I studied ornamental horticulture. I went to Cornell University and had a great plan back then, but that was around the oil crisis, you know, and the in the in the 80s and i was like man you'll never this will never work and i came out to chicago and got into restaurants <laughs> so my first career was in restaurants and i really wanted to cook and so um i have actually been a chef for a number of years we were doing an event down the road there's another group in chicago it started out as um oh what are, they're naturally chicago now good food the good food uh, group the jim uh Okay. I gosh, I forget names, but Flama. Yes, yes, Jim is fantastic. So when I I was at a great restaurant company, Let Us Entertain You, my partner Dan McGowan at the time um, worked very closely with Jim, and so we so he asked us to do a, an event down the road at this farm, and and cool. We went to the event. And it was like, oh my god, it's beautiful out here. And so the lady who was the event coordinator at the time, said, well, if you like it, she said, I think that farm down the road is going to go into foreclosure. So it took a while to oh. get the money together. It was the housing crisis, all the other stuff, you know. But we finally bought the farm, and our intent was just to live there and to raise food for ourselves and our friends. I was going to stay in the restaurants. I had a what seemed to be a – it was a great career. I mean, it was really good. I, I did well, and, <laughs> and I enjoyed it. And so we started with 50 chickens. I mean, it was crazy. Uh, that, I started out with a, just a small chicken flock myself, so I, I, I hear you. Well, we did a straight run because that's what this other person told us to do. So we had 50 chickens as they grew. We got them out onto the field and these little huts that we moved along. But we had 25 roosters and 25 hens. 
So if anybody <laughs> has any chickens and knows that ratio doesn't work, it was it was crazy. I mean, they were nuts. I mean, the roosters were attacking everybody. So finally, and the idea was that you'd take the roosters and you'd have a chicken a week. Um, you know, or a chicken every other week. We liked roasted chicken. That was our crazy thing. And we like roasted chicken. We'll grow our own chickens. But they were laying birds, and they make terrible. I mean, they're just not a good. So, so we finally, <laughs> so then I had one of the chefs come out and help me process the chicken on the farm, 80-degree days with the boiling water. The last time I ever did that, it was oh, uh, that smell never goes away. <laughs> so, but anyway, that's how we started with crazy stuff. Like we started, we got three Berkshire hogs. We were going to sell two to pay for our one. And then, when I, so, and then we started this little market. We were selling into the restaurants. My partner loved that, you know, loved having a chef partner who was, who was selling food in these, you know, a large group of restaurants. And Luis needed to go back mm-hmm. to school, and we had no money. I mean, it was just, you know, just, that's how it happened. Somebody said, you should do a farm stand, the lady down the road. Say, okay, we'll do a farm stand. So we ended up doing a farm stand, and then and they're like, wow, everybody's got vegetables. What are we going to do different? So then we had honey. There's another great guy out. Philip Rains, Rains Honey Farm, who was selling. We were getting his honey for the restaurant. And so I said, well, put some bees on my farm. So we ended up buying the honey off of Philip from the farm. And we had honey. So mm-hmm. anyways, this is where we are now. Last year, I think we raised, right now we have a flock of about 700 laying hens on the farm. We, we raised, wow. I don't know, 150 red wattle pigs. We only raised red wattle. We have about, I don't know, we had about 60 goat kids born in the spring. Um, we have about 15, 10, 15 beehives. You know, they expand and contract. Um, we just had, we got somebody else to raise turkeys for us now, but um, we just sold 200 turkeys. Uh, Amish farmer who does things on pasture with, everything we do is organically raised. We're certified naturally grown now. Um, we uh, we use all non-GMO feeds, which are really hard to get here. We actually have them shipped down from Wisconsin. All non-GMO feeds, all the animals have pasture to go on. Um, and you know, we think we have a good product and we, we, uh, we have a CSA on the last two years, it's done over 700, 750 shares roughly. Um, and so we have a very strong CSA community and, and now we, we, we have a kitchen. I mean, we have a value added kitchen that we just bought the building. You know, we started out doing a shared kitchen space, which was terrific. It's a great way to start. Um, because you can you yes. have various package, you can go by the hour, then you go to five hours, then you go to storage. But we pretty much maxed it out, and we were paying quite a bit of money. Um, and our dear friends, we were, and it was being a pandemic, and we had a huge uptick in the farm. We weren't sure if we were ready to buy the building. And our dear friends bought this building, and we rented it back for them for the year. And then he said, you know, it's just not really, I, I don't really need this. And so he gave us the opportunity to purchase it after putting in new, brand new equipment and tilt skillets. It's just been fantastic. And so here we are. We're we're a value-added soup company. We do soups. We do baked goods and and, and sauces and entrees and drawing on you know my twenty-five something plus years in the restaurant industry. So it's really been. You know, where do we go next? Well, I always say the last thing because my poor husband is <laughs> like, "What else are you going to do?" You know. So really the last thing is to certify our, we'd like to do, I, I love my goats, you know, and, and, and the people love the goats. Um, so we open up and when, when the kidding starts and we allow people to hold the baby goes, no charge, come to the farm and enjoy it and be part of the community. But we really want to get the, the dairy sure. certified. But we've been so busy the last two years with COVID, we kind of put it on the back burner to like, and, and now we did the kitchen. So I need to catch my breath, you know. <laughs> 
<laughs> I, so I, I just am are. terribly curious. <clears throat> what is it about red wattle hogs that, that sold you on that particular breed? You know, it's interesting. We, we knew Berkshire, and particularly as a chef, we know Berkshire. And so I met a guy sure. at a farmer's market, Scott Hasselman, Hasselman Family Farm, uh, the nicest guy ever, integrity, pasture-raised, non-GMO, just a great guy. Anyways, so we got, some, we got our first three Berks, and then we got seven more, and, and, and that's a good pig. And I said, wow, this is really good. What's better? <laughs> you know, we're always looking for, I think it has to be. <laughs> this is good. Is there something better? And so at the time, we had Berkshire, and then I met this other guy, actually at a good food festival, who had Mangalitsa. And so we had Berkshire on the farm, mm-hmm. we had Mangalitsa, and then I went to Michigan. I took this five-hour drive, because I was reading about mang- uh, Red Wattle. And so, in the, in the, so we processed the animals, and we had all three in the, t- in the, in the, in the for sale, you know, and so we tell them, this is Berkshire, this is Mangalitsa, you can try them all, and we tried to give them an idea of the difference. But, but it was ultimately the customer that came back. We thought it was great. We loved it. It's a darker meat. It can live on pasture. It can live in the winter. It has, it has hair, so it can really, and it can develop a thick coat, which the processor doesn't like, down the road from you there. And Eichmann's in Pecatonic does a great <laughs> job. But, you know, it has a thick coat, so it can live outside in the winter. And, um, but the customer ultimately decided that that was the meat that they wanted. Uh, you know, what happens sometimes on heritage pork, as they get like the mangalitsa, well, that's a lard pig, way too much fat, and it's mm-hmm. meant for charcuterie. It's not necessarily meant for pork chops and 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 you know things like that, hams and all that. But the but the red wattle has a decent body tone where it gets a lot of intramuscular fat, and it's a very dark meat, which makes up for some of that. Okay, you know, not being so fat, it makes it extra rich. So. Um, <clears throat> Ultimately, and it's and it's still on the endangered list. Um, so ultimately, you know, there's that thing: um, if you want to save it, you got to eat it. So the producers that we have, when there's only two or three, <laughs> and I'll never tell my source, um, they, you know, sell, they, they sell the breeding stock, you know, for, so to continue to breed and they get them registered. And then the the feeder pigs is what we get, you know. And what's interesting, it was the time we were paying, you know double or triple for the cost of a you know now we have a good guy he's like 80 dollars a piglet but you can get a any old piglet for 20 25 bucks but there was a time when mm. you know we were paying over 100 dollars for a piglet wow that's yeah. a great it's just a great tasting. Yeah, when you're... It's a natural sweetness to it it's just so good so good <laughs> you're making me hungry <laughs> it's a, it is a great product yeah excellent excellent um, what was it about your work as a chef that steered you into the direction of farming? Like, did you have a specialty that gave you the opportunity to work with farmers or other local foods providers? Is that kind of what oh, yeah. got you into that? Or was this was a specialty, okay. but you know, I grew up, my dad always had a garden and we had a greenhouse. And, and so we were, he was always growing. He loved it. That was his hobby. And his, my uncle had a big greenhouse, not big, but big for personal, you know. So we started our seedlings and I just, I loved it. And my mom's a cook, you know, and she can cook. And so, um, you know, I realized, and I realized early on in my chef career, the better the ingredients, the less you have to do to it. And so I've had the opportunity sure. to work with restaurants and partners. And it's not always, well, I, I wouldn't work with a restaurant or a partner where we didn't have the same philosophy, you know, is that, uh, you know, I believe in that, that this food tastes better. So it's always been about taste. Mm. How does it taste? And so 
you know, we happen to be organic um, because because we believe that the food tastes better because you're not pushing it and, it and it's a more natural and you're, you have to farm the soil. And, there, and so there's more nutritious. Mm. So it just tastes better no matter what it is. Um, I mean, but we also we don't like the GMOs and we don't like the there's a lot we don't like about conventional farming for us. And we also have mm. to be in an area where it costs more to produce that product. It costs a lot. You know, we, we don't jam. Pigs live on the field. It's a lot of work, you know. And, 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 and so we have to be fortunate to live in an area that can support us. And I think that's really important. Um, you know, can, can the area that you're in support you? And, and the answer for us is yes. And embrace us. Not as just support us, but they embrace us, which is just amazing. I mean, um, Again, we started out, we just wanted to have That's two pigs for ourselves and our friends. Yeah, but we were very fortunate. But uh, so that's all, you know. And I was up there in the restaurant, too. How does it taste? How does it taste? And so our, it's always been our pursuit. And that's how we ended up with the red waddle, too. Um, we said, wow, this really tastes good. But, but you know, <laughs> in the end, <clears throat> I worked with this guy who taught me great food. I loved him. Um, and he was, it could be really difficult, you know. And so one time, so I really liked that. <laughs> and he was, you know, he was, he was just snappy. He said, I, you know, I don't give an F what you like. And he was right. It's what the customer likes. And he was right. And I never forgot. It. He, was a, he was kind of a jerk at times, but I never forgot it. And so it's like, well, you can like this all you want, but if the customer doesn't get it. My other partner who was at, with Lettuce, you know, he always said, you know, sometimes we get two steps ahead of the customer. And, and, and that's not right because we get excited. and we're, You just have to be one step ahead of it. That's all to give them the next great thing. Um, because if you get too far ahead, you know, people want asparagus year round, you know, and they're so used to it. Um, but, and so sure. we try to teach, you oh, know, asparagus is good. This is what we, and, and even for Louise and I, when the asparagus that we have, it, you know, three or four times out a luxury to have, you know, asparagus right in front of you that you grew three or four times a week. I mean, you got to cut it every day just basically. So that's always been our pursuit. How do we make it taste better? And and people are responding to it, and that's terrific. As people get started in farming, and particularly in local foods type of agriculture, they they kind of struggle initially because they're worried about having a marketplace for what they can grow. Like the if you build it, they will come thing doesn't always work. So yeah. did your existing relationships with chefs and restaurants in the area, did that provide you with sort of a, uh, a built-in marketplace that you could use to launch your farm? I mean, and was it weird being on the other side of the transaction? So what's interesting with that is, you know, when I started, I sold to our own restaurants and then a few other partners that let us. But at this point now, we have zero wholesale. We're just not interested. And, and we can't keep up, And uh, you know, in terms of production. Um, the challenge... And this is not true for everyone. Um, but the challenge is, and there's a lot of great articles. There's a great New York Times article that my daughter, maybe it was Miami, I don't remember. And she sent to me a few years back. And, and you see this all the time. You know, here comes the chef and he goes to the farmer's market and he buys two little bags for 20 bucks of produce and he, and he slops all over his menu <laughs> that I, you know, I support local food. I had a customer, they're long gone now, not surprising, was getting tomatoes from us. And so I, I took a okay. guest to the restaurant and I said, um, oh, well, get, the, get he, my friend said, I think I'm going to get the hamburger. Oh, good. It's our tomato in there. Oh, no. The chef said, oh, your tomatoes are too I get the other 
the wholesaler tomatoes for that one. And, and I put your <laughs> tomato. And the, you know, you know, I mean, I, so there's a, so, <laughs> but there's a lot of great chefs out there and restaurants that are really supporting local food. But at this point, um, it's just not a part of our business. Hey, I hope it is one day, you know, but on our, uh, we, we just can't keep up. So no, we don't need Understood. to do chefs anymore. Yeah. But I, but I did use, I used my, you know, particularly, you know, my partner that I worked with um, appreciated what we did and thought, and that was a big part of, of, of his own philosophy. Um, so it worked, you know, mm-hmm. and he supported it and we found, he found a way to make it work. You know, um, I mean, he was really good with numbers and I, and I appreciate that. And I think that helps with our own farm too, between Lisa and I, we all have different specialties. And, and, and the division in, that I was in was a very big division. So I was focused on food, but I was good at numbers. Uh-huh. And so I could have an idea and, and bring it to my partner and say, hey, what do you think about this? He said, well, let me, let me run the numbers and see how we can make it work. And if it was a program that he thought was good, he'd run the numbers and see how he, make it, you know, he could make it work. The same is true for home, too, for our own farm today. You know, I try to surround myself with, you know, people who can't do what I can do, who are experts in something. Um, and the kitchen's a perfect example. Mm-hmm. I, I, don't, I don't really like to bake, so I try to have somebody here who can bake, who can teach me how to bake. Um, and I think that's really important. Um, you can't do everything. We don't, you know, I, I have somebody who can fix vehicles. I bring my tractor to the tractor guy because I don't do that. You know, that's not my specialty, and I don't, I don't want anybody hacking on it. And we've done well with that. Right. Um, but it costs. It costs. You know, it, 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 so it's tough starting out, but I think you got to know your market. You know, you got to know your market. And we started just with wholesale. And then we were getting people saying, no, I want that. Can you do that? <laughs> and yeah, we ended up doing enough of it. So I, I eventually left the restaurants altogether as the farm started to grow, which is what I always wanted to do. I just never knew when. You mentioned that uh, you really were embraced by the community that you're near as well. And the community that you're near, I mean, <clears throat> you're literally just about spitting distance from the nearest, like, suburban subdivision in Kane County, Illinois. I mean, I'm sure you can see it from your window. Yeah, across um, the street, yeah. Yeah, has, has, yeah exactly. So has that proximity to the uh, to the outermost suburbs of Chicago, has that kind of... I mean, obviously, it's affected your farming, and obviously, it's affected your marketing. Was that intentional? Did you want to be that close to no. that community no, when no, you no. guys got we, started? No, no. no, we just loved. We came to the property and loved the property. It was not our intention to mm. do this when we came to the property. It was five. So the property that, that we own is only five and a half acres, but it was enough to do some stuff for the restaurant. What really happened was Luis wanted to go back to school and finish his. First, he got his, 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 finished his bachelor's, and now he has his master's. Um, he's a bilingual special education wow. teacher. Yeah, he's done trick. And so and that was kind of the deal. He was in school, and that was kind of the deal. Well, if, if we moved to the farm, because it was sort of my thing, the farm, then he had to finish his school. So we came out. He found a school. Uh-huh. And I'm like, we don't have any money left. I mean, we had put everything into this because our house is underwater, <laughs> but we thought it was the best thing. So I said, okay, well, listen, I can coach you about what to plant and how to plant it and how to take care of it. So we had him and we have one other guy who's still with us today. And that's what we did. In our first year, we did like $42,000. And I was like, wow, just on this little plot. I'm like, this soil is amazing. I haven't seen this. The growing <laughs> out here, the soil in this area is amazing. It's just amazing. 
I'd never experienced it. You know, I've been dabbling all my life in, in gardens and whatnot. And, and, but this soil in this area is unique. I, I really have found it. Um, and so then we thought next year, so next year we, that was, we did an acre or some silly thing. I don't know. The next year we did, we were cutting the grass. I'm like, oh my God, this is too much grass. Let's just plow it. And we'll grow something. So the next year we did another plow. <laughs> and the next year we got three acres. And then we went to seven acres. And then we added 12 acres for the longest time that I gave up. Well, they, we, I didn't give it up. They got, it kind of threw us out because they were tired. There wasn't enough water there. Um, and, and to think that you're going gotcha. to do this kind of growing without water is crazy. So we had a little well. So I grow in the spring when we have water. Um, but, you know, then I kind of left it there. We were so busy. So now we're on. Uh, we, so we did about 15 acres. There's more available to us. We just did 15 acres this year, but it has water. The other big thing is, is okay. the coop houses. You know, we have. We got a, We got a, a high tunnel grant for one of them. We bought two new, and then last year I picked up another five or so um, from a place that was going. No, I picked up six from a place that was going under. Um, so I paid next to nothing. Okay. I don't, at this point, I don't remember how much I paid for them, but I was like, "Man, that's a deal." Um, so we love <laughs> next to nothing is always the right price, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. yeah, it really is. Yeah, so that's where we are with in terms of what we're growing and producing and and. And our customer base. Um, it was really important for us. We we came from a great. Co- Luis worked at you know on and off at the, at the company. It wasn't his career, but he did work in the restaurant when when you know to make money for us or whatever. But it was never going to be his career. Sure. But we we worked with a company that was really focused on the guests and on the staff. Um, and so I, and, you know this whole idea and, and the, the founder you know had came up with this campaign when one of the recessions you know to cherish the guests. You know, and so Luis and I, it's yes. ingrained in us. I and love we really that. believe in that. Yeah, so we take, if there's a new customer, all of, if, if there was a new guest in the restaurant, we always ask, a server always asks, is this your first time at the restaurant? And everybody jumps because you mm-hmm. only got one chance. And that's it. So we bring out, we bring out <laughs> little taste, you know, a little tastings menu and, or, you know, a little uh, sample appetizer. We might a little two bites of dessert at the end. Um, and so we've really embraced that at the farm, too, when someone's there for the first time. And so Luis will always say they haven't been here before. So that means he sends me over because, as you can see, I talk. <laughs> and so he's <but> <laughs> trying to get a feel of why they're here and, and what we can show them. Um, and we always have samples. You know, we don't always. During COVID, we didn't. We just started sampling again. But, you know, to taste our bacon or our soup or whatever the case may be to, to, to make people feel welcome and to see the baby goats. And a lot of people, though. During baby goat season, they'll call and say, is there a charge to see the baby goat? Like, oh, my God, no. No, there shouldn't be a charge for that. We're not as – I mean, we're, we're fortunate that we have a successful business. We don't have to charge an admission. And we don't want to and because we want people to mm-hmm. come and enjoy it. There's two parts to it. <clears throat> we want people to come and enjoy it. But with 60 baby goats, we can't handle them enough. And we don't, we don't pull them off the moms. We, let it, we don't wean them until 10, 12 weeks. Um, so we don't okay. – you know, if you don't handle the animal, then they're not used to people. So they're really doing us a favor. Ah, the socialization. Too. They help socialize, yeah. And 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 plus, it's such a good. It's the middle of winter, you know. We start kidding January, February. Last year was a little earlier, um, and, and it's just a great feeling. But also, you know, they remember that, and I believe. Don't you don't have to buy? I say this other. You don't have to buy anything. Don't feel like you have to buy anything. But I do believe if people have that good, warm feeling that that if they buy something today, maybe, or maybe the next day, but they'll be back. They'll be back. And our numbers show that. We continue to grow and we continue to have 
strong market in the time when everybody's nervous and scared for farms. I mean, it, the winters are tough, you know? We used to do our, when we did Absolutely. our first, our first winter, we, I was our first baby goat. <clears throat> and Louis and I, we never advertised that much, very little, because we had eggs and we had, you know, maybe some root vegetables and maybe a little bit of meat. And we, at that time, we might only had a hundred chickens. And so, but we had regular customers who liked their eggs and our meats, but we didn't want a whole lot of people coming to the farm because they come to the farm and say, what is this? Mm-hmm. You don't have anything here. This is kind of kooky. But we were happy if we paid the feed bill. So what, and so we'd go outside and we saw the first customer coming down the driveway. You know, it was very, it was very much a neighborhood type place. So I said, I don't know. And Louise was like, what are you going to do with these goats? What are you going to do with these goats? I'm like, oh, I've figured out. Stop following all my goats. I love my goats. And so, <laughs> and so, so I said, I, I'm going to call it a baby goat show. So I said, oh, fine. Come to the farm this Saturday, baby goat show, hold the baby goats, no charge, buy some eggs, whatever you're going to do. So we're in the house. And I'm sure. like, Louise, look at all the cars coming up the driveway. Now, in that time, <laughs> I'll tell you how slow we were. We used to take our own cars out of the garage and the staff. I said, put, park the cars in the parking lot so people don't feel, no cars in the parking lot. People feel like, oh, this is weird. I'm not coming here. We would park our own cars <laughs> in the parking lot so people thought there was customers there. And, and I'd sure. say the baby goat show, we had to get dressed. We weren't even dressed. We were still having coffee, you know. But that, that really made a difference. And that was the year we went to, we went from 100 shares to 300 shares for our CSA. Oh, my gosh. Because people found, yeah, that's, that's humongous. Huge, right? That's a, yeah, it's three times. I mean, for some farms, that's not a lot, but you're tripling your your CSAs. That's a you know that's a learning curve, and it's, the CSA has been such a learning curve. So, oh my god, that's the hardest thing we do. Well, and about that that that's not something you and Luis and one other guy you mentioned that that's how you began. But there's no way you're doing a. The 300 plus member CSA plus all this livestock plus everything no. yourself, right? Like, what does your farm labor situation look like at this point? And it, it, are you able to transmit that sort of cherish the guest mentality? Does that go through the entire staff as well as sort of a, a rallying cry that they get behind? And that's, that's, yes. And I will say that's, that's, yes, absolutely. And it comes from the top down, you know, and, and we hire. You know, there's a, there's a market staff, a growing staff, but we hire good people. Um, you know, one of my the guys, the, the leadership at Let Us Entertain You, don't work with people. You, you know, don't interview people and you don't like them and you don't, you don't hire them. I mean, if it's not a fit, you know, for whatever reason, then don't hire them. So we really look for, you know, there's, right. you know okay, if I hire this person, what slot do they fill? You know, and if it's for market, you know, they have to be comfortable speaking to the guests. They have to, um, you know, be friendly and, be, and not be afraid to talk. And if you have, like, sometimes we have young kids that, you know, we're short on staff. So I say to them, listen, just keep smiling and just keep, that's all you got to do, just keep smiling and then come and get some help. That's all. But don't forget <laughs> to smile, you know, and I'll be right with you. Right. You know, there's a lot of very basic things that um, we forget, but I think we've done really well especially with our markets. We have a couple of gals at the market that are just, they don't even come to see us anymore. They come to see, they come to see the gals at the market, which is <laughs> terrific. That's what you want. I mean, look at, I ran, I had a lot of restaurants I was responsible for. And in different regions, Washington, outside of DC in this great little suburb, and then Minneapolis and those suburbs, and then the city and everything. Can't do everything yourself with like that and be successful. 
And so we had key people. And, and as we've come along, you know, we've tried to develop key people. Um, so we have this one gal who's terrific in the market. She started, I think she started with us. Um, she was a CSA member and she loved the goat. So she came and she volunteered to, because uh-huh. she's, you know, to, to hold baby goats. To, to help kids and parents how to hold the baby goat. And she was terrific at it. And we said, oh, I just say you're so good. Come help us in the market. I mean, so she does both now, but she loves those goats. She's crazier about goats than I am, which is fantastic. Another guy who's been with us two or three years. When, when I first met him, I never had anybody that could drive the tractor. I'm like, oh my gosh, I got to drive the tractor. Okay. Myself. Okay, well, that's all right. Now this guy comes and he's like, oh, I worked over here. You worked on big farms. So, he, so those equipment, so like, wow, that's a big deal. This guy can plow, he can till, he can plant, but he's mechanically inclined, and he understands, you know, growing. So he really does our field work. Um, and then the newest thing is the kitchen. You know, I'm still the chef, um, and, and it's tough in restaurants right now. I mean, it's hard to attract people. So I'm hoping after the first of the year, you know, we get some some more applicants here who can help us grow this thing so I can step back a little bit and manage the growth of the whole company. And I think that's key. I think you What's can't it? be out in the field scratching scratching the beats all the time. It's just that it's not, for me, it's not right. going to work. Not, not, at this, not at the size that we're at. Part of the, what do you, know, you do to kind of keep people around? That's, uh, that's been one of the things that has always been in the mainstream media lately, as you hear about the great resignation. Are, are you able right. to keep people? And if so, how? What, what's, keeping them in, what's keeping them at your place? I think I think we pay them well. We pay them better than most farms, and I think mm-hmm. that's important. You know, when you're trying to support a family, I think we try to be pretty good to people. I think that's important. But I, I'll tell you the biggest thing. I think they're empowered. You know, this guy I have who runs the field, Jose, he's empowered to make decisions. You know, we talk about it, and sometimes I don't agree, and I'll say, okay, but you know, but he's empowered to make decisions about where he wants to put stuff. I'll tell him. You know, a lot of times I tell him, no, we need, you know, because he doesn't always know the numbers of the CSA. So I said, no, I don't think that's enough. And I want to put this over there. And we, we, we grow a lot of food for the <clears throat> Aurora Interfaith Food Pantry. So, um, mm. you know, he's, he's working into that role, though. But he is empowered. Um, to t- you know, we need chicken feed. I used to have to call the guy up in Wisconsin all the time to get the chicken feed. I say, here's the number. You know what we need? Call him. You know, they can spend money. He's got, a, he's got a farm credit card so he can go out and get stuff what he needs. And I think that's really important. Um, not everybody is under my thumb all the time. Although, um, at the end of the day, I look at the work you know, a couple times a day. Okay, what do we start with? Where do we end up? And why we didn't get there? And a lot of times it's me. I, say, I give them too much. <laughs> but I think that's really important, especially now. I think we're going to have to pay people more. And I don't think that's a bad thing. You know, we've always paid higher than than we never had a minimum you know we never i don't even know what minimum wage is we never did it um but you know but that's who we are i mean some of that has to get passed on to the customer um and and i i fear for inflation right now with all this because prices are going up fast Mm. fast so yes in terms of keeping people i think that's been very important for us you also just mentioned some of the work that you do with the food pantry. And it, it seems to me that making good food available uh, to everyone is sort of a conundrum that the local it food sure movement is. 
really has kind of long struggled with, right? Local food it's farms, true. especially those that are very near like upscale urban populations like you are, they sometimes get pigeonholed, right? As these producers of, you know, quote unquote, yuppie chow, super good, super expensive food, just for the folks who are like in the upper echelons. It sounds like it's important to you to get food in the hands of all those that that are in need. So talk a little bit more about those efforts that you undertake to in, in the name of good food for all, if you would. You know, I, I think there's two things that need to be addressed. Number one, <clears throat> when we started raising pigs in the, in the restaurants, I, I did well because I could I could cook and understand food and had good taste. But I also did well because I understood numbers. And my the partner that I had let yes. us really appreciate that I understood numbers. You know, some chefs are going, just get me those truffles. I don't care. And so you have a, a McDonald's hamburger with shaved <laughs> truffles on it. You know what I mean? Is that, well, that, you, you can't get $2 for that. And so I was very good at that. So I was going through, you know, and we wanted to raise pigs on pasture. We, didn't, we, we felt strongly about having clean feed for them. Our customer did too. And so we get our first pig mm-hmm. back. I'm like, holy, <laughs> you know, I don't want to swear, you know, but, but, but my mind, I'm like, holy, you know. Why is this? Why is this meat so expensive? So I go line by line, and what I realized was the problem is not that our meat's so expensive. Why is the pig? Why is the pig in the grocery store so cheap? Why are the eggs so cheap? And if you look into that, mm. it's it's so out of balance. It's so out of balance. The subsidies, the way those animals are grown. You know, we pork commercial pork now, and we're like, oh my god, this is like. It, 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 it tastes like the poop that they live above. It's just not good. And so I think that's one very important thing. Is that why is it, and when you start looking into it, you know, in the 70s when, they, when you know, Nixon wanted to have cheap food because he was worried about not getting elected and all the subsidies for, you know, corn and beans and then the high fructose comes along. There's so much, not, not political, but there's a lot of talk about it out there, why we have cheap food, not good food. And so... Um, mm-hmm. But but then you are stuck with you know why are people you know of lesser means you know, f- you know feel like they're forced into eating McDonald's or or you know I don't know so whatever fast food I don't pick on McDonald's I actually think they do a good job at, of marketing what they do but that's different besides mm-hmm. um, anyways so when we started out so we thought that was important that that more people had access to this food. So we met a woman <clears throat> who was a customer. And at the time she was, um, uh, uh, she was a fundraising consultant for the Aurora Interfaith Food Bank. We still keep in touch with her. Kathy Musso. Oh my God, she's wonderful. And she said, Hey, are you guys interested <laughs> in, I, I work for this pantry and, 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 you know, the pantries need food. They need money. They need whatever they need. I thought, That's interesting. We had a few criteria, <clears throat> Not, you know, for whatever reason of what we believed, you know, I don't know. Um, we didn't want to be a religious, you know, group, and and we wanted to serve. At least as Hispanics, that so was important for us to serve. You know, a tr- you know, there are many underserved, but that community in particular, we had an interest in the the the, the, the you know the black and brown community, and so that was perfect. And and we okay. liked because they y- you weren't given a box of food, and I don't know they might do it different now because of COVID, but. <clears throat> You know, where it's more drive up, but they used, used to get a grocery cart and you'd go through the aisles and you'd pick your stuff. And, oh, I like that, you know. But the biggest, you know, they have plenty of dry goods. Um, but one of the largest things that they, they needed was fresh produce. I'm like, oh, we can do that, you know. Um, and so we mm-hmm. made a commitment to send um, <clears throat> 10 cases. I mean, we're small, 10 cases of um, 
produce a week. Ten, you know, the bushel boxes of produce um, every week. And it was great. We loved it. And then we started, um, we started doing pumpkins for the pantry. We had some pumpkins in the back. And I, and I wasn't a fan of, I don't want to have, you know, pumpkin festivals. And, and, and I really wanted to focus on food. I don't want to sell jack and engine Christmas trees and bouncy houses and all that stuff. So then I got an okay. idea. I said, let's do, let's do um, pumpkins for the pantry, we called it. So we teamed up with the Aurora Pantry and we let the people go out and, and, and pick their pumpkin. And they could donate whatever they wanted, you know, and, and, and it was like really successful. Um, and we had little soups and stuff. And so now, and so now I was just looking up <clears throat> this year, we did, um, you know, again, big deal, not a big deal. Fifteen hundred dollars in pumpkin pan, in pumpkin money. I mean, that's like really cool. cool. In addition to you know, we were sending them. We still have more. You know, uh, we we try to do a pallet of food a week for them. Um, and so it's a really and now our customers are into it and they and they and they we have a a, 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 a money jar and they put the change in it. But we're regular don't. And then Louise and I try to match the donation if we're in a good place. Um, so it's become a big a big thing for us, and it's a really good. I don't know. It's 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 it, it feels good to get that food out there. Um, you know, in our area, we can't do SNAP benefits or or, or the WIC benefits. We don't have that register, um, or that okay. ability. Um, <clears throat> but we can do something, um, and so I think it's really good. I don't know. I like it a lot. It's been a big big thing for the farm. That's great. Yeah. Great. The other thing that you have mentioned a couple of times so far is is numbers. And I'm so glad because what we always try to do on this podcast is kind of bring it back around to the the financials and any actionable insights you have for uh, other farmers who are listening to this podcast. So if you would, um, I'd love it if you tell me a little bit about sort of the the financial life of Rustic Road Farm. Was it, you know, early on, was it was it challenging to get into the the land and infrastructure? Do you have an ongoing relationship with a financial institution uh, that you have, you know, kept over the years? Um, and kind of what do you do as far as analysis is concerned uh, to keep track of whether or not you're meeting your goals? So, Sorry, too many parts in that question, no, but no, kind of startup and financial institution and how you analyze, too. Well, I would tell you, um, you know, if you're not counting, then you're doing something. Count. That's all. Count everything. How, how many of this do we have? How many do we need? How many do we sell? <laughs> and so when we first started out, <clears throat> we didn't even do credit cards. We just took cash in a drawer. Mm. Then we added the credit cards. But the, the part with the credit cards we didn't have you know, we had a very simple square system where you just, you had to put in, t I'll tell you how I did it. On a paper bag, I'd write people, I'd, they'd give me a carrots is $3, you know, zucchini is a dollar, whatever. And I write it on the piece of paper and I do it in my head. And, and you know, mm -hmm. and, but, but the problem with that is how the hell do you know what you sold? So we went to a more advanced <laughs> yep. square and we got where you entered in uh, um, the item. So you put carrots on the register at $3 and you entered the correct tax for it. And then at the end of the day, you could you ring it up. You have live updates, <clears throat> pardon me, throughout the day. How many carrots did I sell today? Now, if you're pushing carrots, like, oh, she's what did I do wrong here? You know, the carrots too expensive. Is the bunch too small? Why aren't the carrot? The carrot tastes good. Something's not right. Why the carrot's not selling? And so we do a lot of that. Mm. We do it. We do it in the short term, where it's like, wow, I got to move this carrot. <clears throat> and so, what are we going to do to get it to sell? Or, or we have a big 
had a, a big crop of lettuce or too many eggs, you know. Um, and so you have to have the numbers and the data. And now that we've been on that system for two or three years now, we have previous data. Mm-hmm. So it's, and that's what we did in the restaurants. We looked at the week before and we looked at the weather and, and we looked at if there's any events going on to, to decide how many, how many carrots are you going to cook for the restaurant today? And it's no different for the farm. What did we sell last week? What do we sell this week? How's the weather tomorrow? And that helps us determine what we're going to harvest. And, and, and then at the end of the day, though, you got to look at it and say, okay, how did we do? And so, it's, so that's the small term, but we do the same for the long term, too. Is it, and we have an accountant. Mm. We, we use QuickBooks. He has access to He updates all the information QuickBooks. And then we meet him. And two or three times a year, I meet with him. Say, okay, how are we doing? You know, we have very slow periods. I don't, <clears throat> I know we're not doing good. But I want to see, you know, we get monthly statements, you know, and, and which is the same we did in the restaurants. How did you do this month? You know, what, where, where did you not hit your labor numbers? What was the schedule that you wrote? How many guys you got here? Why have you got overtime? Um, and justify it. And, and see, and as you grow, you know, with, with the guy in the field, and say, hey, man, why you got so many people here and you didn't get the carrots picked? What's going on today? You know, and you might say, well, you know, we're right. fluffing off or whatever the case may be. And so that's really how we <laughs> manage the farm. And we have an account, which I think is very important. We, we, the bank doesn't help that much. And we actually, you know, our first, actually somebody out by that way, um, hazard-free farm out in Pecatonica. She um, said, hey, you mm-hmm. should go, you know, they do these uh, micro loans, $35,000 with the, with the Farm Service Agency, part of the USDA. And, you know, and, and, and it's a reasonable rate and a reasonable payback. Okay, 35000 I'll go look at that. And so we got this. And so we, we bought our first little tractor with that. I don't know, we bought a truck with it. Whatever we got with it. I think we might have got a hoop house with it. I can't remember. Um, but that was our first. Mm-hmm. And we worked with the FSA for quite some time because we were small. And, um, you know, we couldn't go to conventional bank. Um, so I guess the idea is that you go to the conventional bank first and if they turn you down. But our numbers were so poor in the beginning, like, you don't have to go to the bank. You ain't going to get anybody. So, so we were, <laughs> you know, we were fortunate to get some FSA loans. And then we, I think we got a building loan. We put up a, you know, a packing shed. We were, we were, I mean, we just kept growing and, and we needed a walk-in cooler. Um, but, you know, now we're, we've sort of outgrown the FSA. So last time we were going to buy the building. So I called a wonderful woman uh, with the farm service agent, Petrina. And I said, hey, Petrina, <clears throat> Petrina Thomas out here locally. I said, you know, we want to buy this building. Is that something that you guys do? She said, well, go to another great company, Compere Financial. I'm not being paid for any of this, by the way. But I was so amazed. Um, <laughs> you know, we never had, we didn't do a line of credit. And so to the woman at Compere, I mean, they support local farmers. Um, and they're different sizes. I think that's another problem is that, you know, the little guys in, this, in, the, in, the, in the farming scheme of the government, a lot of times don't have access to a lot of those programs that the big commercial guys do. But Compere has mm-hmm. been great. They actually asked me to sit on their farmer advisory board, um, not because we're so great, but I think because we're a small farm and they want representation for a small farmers and, the, and how to finance these small farms. So I think it's terrific. We were able to buy a building, you know, with, I don't remember the interest rate, but it's really low because they put it under expanding <laughs> markets or something like that. So it's still, even though it's, you know, we take our produce and we cook our produce and our meats or whatever, but it's not really a conventional farm loan. Um, and so I think that's really important. And now we have our first, 
She said, I can't believe you've done this without a line of credit. I'm like, for us, our line of credit has been the CSA. I mean, so you know, that's ah. what gets us through the winter. And that helps us start in the spring has <clears throat> been the, the early CSA sales. So those early CSA sales for us are deeply discounted. And we haven't raised those prices in five or six years because that we, we okay. give them back their money. Their interest on their money is the discount that they've earned. And each month now that the price goes up till we get to the closer to the CSA. Um, and that's our give back to them is, is the interest on their money is, is through a discounted price. But it's been very effective for us. So, no, we haven't done a um, – uh, but we do. You know, I said, oh, fine, if I don't use it, I don't pay for it. There's no fees for it. So we do have a, a line of credit in case we need it. You know, it is risky as you grow here. I mean, your cash needs become greater to have cash on hand. So um, it's yes. nice to have that insurance policy um, in case we need it. All really very important points. I, I, I love <laughs> You just did like half of our lessons that we make at FFI, right? It's like meet with your, have an accountant, meet with your accountant regularly, do analysis, keep inventory, know what you've got, know what you're selling. I mean, these are all really, really wonderful things that you do. So I, I'm very glad to hear that. Uh, I mean, just the fact that you're CSA, that, that model specifically is so useful for a lot of farmers, specifically because of that you know, cash upfront in order to um, meet some of your upfront needs. So uh, in addition to all of this stuff, you have a lot of enterprises, right? You have a lot of different enterprises we on do. one farm. Do you do, do. do you do enterprise by enterprise analysis to sort of determine which ones are performing, which ones aren't, whether or not you should add any new ones, that kind of thing? Well, I'll be divorced if I add any new ones. So no, we're not going to add any new ones. <laughs> but yes, we do. We do. Fair look, enough. We, you know, we. And that's where you know a good accounting system helps. And I sometimes I think you know because now we have the soup company. So the accountant said, I don't know. I'm considering. You know, we have to separate the soup company out even more because it's become you know thirty to forty percent of our revenue now is coming from the soup company. Um, and so we so we're going to okay. we're meeting actually our year end meeting um, next week. And we're going to talk about that is how do we, you know, keep it under the rusty road umbrella to, you know, if we, if we pull it out, you know, then we have a separate insurance policy and, 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 you know, these farms, small farms are just not that rich. And so he advised trying right. to keep it under the lettuce, the, 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 the rustic road umbrella. Um, and so we can take advantage of, uh, you know, not having separate insurance policies and all, the, and all the other things that go with it. So what we'll do is, is I actually cut, you know, a separate <clears throat> credit card um, that we'll just use for the soup company when we make um, online purchases or something for packaging or something like that so that that's easy to keep aside mm -hmm. and we'll start coding invoices to say this is packaging, this is, uh, you know, uh, this is uh, food that's not in season or something like that. So um, it'll help us really take a look at, um, you know, <laughs> we used to raise our own chickens. You know, for, for meat mm -hmm. birds. But we didn't have a house for them, and we had so much trouble with coyotes and hawks and everything else. And what we yeah. wanted, we wanted to birds the way we wanted our birds. We wanted them on pasture. We wanted non-GMO feed. Um, and, and, and we didn't want, um, you know, uh, that was the biggest thing, on pasture, non-GMO feed. And so then we, so I don't know, I met this, actually a guy who helped us um, early on when we met him 
at, at the King County Fair. He was an old sheep farmer, retired professor, another okay. smart man. And and he's and he but he knew the Amish people. He he lived amongst the Amish people downstate. And he said, "Let me have you talk to Melvin, you know." And so he got me in touch with Melvin. I said, "Melvin, I I want somebody to raise my chickens for me, but they have to be on pasture and they have to be a non-GMO feed down there. Non-GMO feed is easy. They raise it up here. It's really tough to get. You have to ship okay. in." And so I found a guy who now raises his birds. He raises birds for us on pasture, non-GMO feed. And, and then takes them to the processor just down the road. That's the other problem. The same problem. And here's the, here's the real kicker. For the same price as we could do it ourselves without the labor. Because yeah. we just can't, we're just, not a, we're just not good enough at it. We're not set up for it. And, and you know, we pay $275 to have the food shipped down from Wisconsin. You know, just for shipping. You know, for, uh, I think we can yes. get a, a two pallets, I think is 275 1,200 pounds. I can't remember exactly. It doesn't matter. But it's just part of what we do. I mean, so we've gotten smarter. We used to do turkeys, too. When we were really small, we could do 40 turkeys. Now, so he's got, a, you know, another guy down there. He raises turkeys for two people, for us and one other farmer, Scott Haston, who I mentioned. Um, and we, yeah. we give him his price. You know, here's the other thing, like with turkeys. We don't make that much money on the turkey. <clears throat> Very little. Where we make the money is, and that's the other thing I think is important for everyone to realize. In their own farm, <clears throat> we don't make a lot of money in the turkey. But that's okay. We keep the price fair, and it's still—they're five dollars a pound. It's still—it's not cheap. You know, it's not fifty-nine cents or whatever they sell in the grocery store. But it's a pasture-raised bird, not right. true pasture-raised, out eating grass. So, so it's a pasture-raised bird. But where we make money is the stuffing, the gravy, the cranberry sauce, um, and we make—we take bread ah. and cornbread, and, and and we grow the herbs for it, and we make a great stuffing with butter and cream. You know, the way it's supposed to be made. And the gravy is, you know, all those backs, backs and necks and gizzards that we get from those turkeys, we roast and we make gravy over. You know, we make the stock overnight and we save the fat and use that for the roux and we put butter in it. You know, it's a really good, it's just really good. Um, And you can't buy that out there. And so that's where we make the money to make up the difference. And I think the same is true. We used to do this in the restaurant. You know, you know, you price, find out what your big sellers are and that's what you you know that's what you get your money for but you always have to something on the menu that's not quite mm-hmm. so expensive now it's not going to be your top selling item you're not going to take a lower percentage on that because you need to make money but if it's something that's um, mm-hmm. you know not a big seller because it, it looks better on the menu you know not to have everything at, at twenty dollars you know it's nice to have something mm-hmm. that's a little bit more affordable and so we really try to pay attention to that too and we're pricing things I mean, and again, that's all I do is, you know, when it's market day, you know, everybody laughs at me. They don't want me on the cash register because I talk too much, but they want me talking to the customer. <laughs> but then I, but I'm also looking at what are people buying? That's the answer is everything. What are people buying? Because that's what you want to focus on. That's what your customer wants. And what are they willing, you know, what's the price elasticity on it? Um, you know, now I'm so worried with prices going up, labor and gas and diesel you know, how much elasticity do we have in the price where people will stop buying it? I get really nervous with that. And that's why sure. we like volume. I mean, our, our CSA is, is nobody, very few farms in this area are doing a full share and a bushel and a ninth anymore. And so they're sending mm-hmm. out their full share in the three-quarter bushel box and some less for the same price. As, so it's a value thing. We believe in value and 
a lot of the restaurants I work with are high volume restaurants, and I loved it. Food in today, food out tonight. Best. You always have fresh food, and and it, they were reasonably priced. Mm-hmm. So you didn't necessarily make you didn't necessarily make a big percentage on each item, but you made a lot of dollars. You know, and my former father-in-law used to say, "Remember, you can't take percentage to the bank. You might have a good percentage on something, <laughs> but you take money to the bank." And so that's what I've always tried to focus. I don't want to have and volume and, and more people on the farm is more exciting and, and so it adds to the atmosphere you know you still have to give good service and good food but i always liked volume and that's why i never shut off the csa i never shut it down because one more csa we can come on you can get 10 more items for one more csa you know how do you turn people away so we don't Okay. <laughs> okay, Mark. Well, that's that's great. I, I love that. You can't take percentage to the bank. That's <laughs> that's nice life lesson there. Um, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you, uh, speaking of the, the sort of farm's financial life, uh, you guys have been the recipient of not one, but I believe two value-added two. producer grants from yeah. USDA Rural Development. We've talked yeah. about these on the podcast before. They're some of the most kind of substantial grant awards that a value-added farm can pursue. However, they are a ton of work to win. Um, But when you do win them, they can mean a pretty big change in the trajectory of the the farm business. So uh, what have these value-added producer grants meant to Rustic Road Farm? They are, they, if the business plan is written well and the grant is written well, they are life-changing. They will change your farm forever. Mm. And I think the best thing that we, so our first one was when we, after, oh, I met another guy. The Good Food Festival, I'm telling you, you get out to these events, you meet people. (laughs) There was a guy in Indiana, I think he's Indiana or Illinois, I'm not sure, uh, Living Waters Farm, nicest guy, tied to the Kilgus family. I forget his name on top of my head. But anyway, so he said, you should meet this guy, Jim Gage. He writes these grants. I got this grant that really helped us get this project off the ground. But, okay, whatever. You know, mm. I said, I'm little, I'm still working. I you know, I was still at the restaurant. So I talked to this guy, Jim Gage up in Wisconsin. He said, okay, let me come down, you know, and, 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 and hear your story. So he came down and he was just a great, he's just so much energy and just wonderful man. He's just <laughs> loves what he's doing. And that's evident, you know, and loves supporting our work too. So we got to go, okay. I said, I think you, I think you have something here. Your story is good. So it was, it was around this time of the year. And, 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 and so listen, I came from a company of partners. So I really believe in that bringing in people who don't know what you're doing, you know, who do, who do something, I'm sorry, mm-hmm. who do something different than you do. You know, they're an asset to you and you pay them, you know? And so I think people are scared of that. So, so part of Jim's work is he's your partner in this grant, which I love. He has to write a better grant. He's not going to give you some shoddy grant. You know, he wants, because now he's tied to the success of the grant. And so I really like that. But I think a lot of people are scared of that. Like, I'm not giving him my money, but you can't write that. I don't believe, <laughs> listen, I'm not a dum-dum, but I don't think I could have wrote that grant. I mean, it is really good. I would a thousand percent say find a grant writer and find one who's got a success behind him. You know, anybody's I could write a grant, but uh-huh. this guy's been very successful. But anyways, so. So I said, I don't think I'm going to do it, Jim. I don't have the money. It was so much money down. And I'm like, I I don't have the money. I'm going into winter. He says, let me tell you something. I believe in you so much and what you're doing. When you get the grant, you can pay me then the the, the balance of the whatever. Okay, if I don't get the grant, whatever, I I was going to pay him anyways. 
but it, he allowed me to, to defer the payment on it because he felt so strongly about it. So sure enough, I, it was in the summer. Uh, I don't remember when the grants, they were late, you know. Um, <clears throat> and I was sitting on the porches of one of our restaurants and there was going to be some changes in the restaurant. And they were going to get rid of all this great food, local stuff that my partner and I were doing. I'm like, oh my God, I just, you know, it just like goes back to what, you know, the, this person said to me years ago in the restaurants, if you don't, if it's not, if it's not a match, then don't do it. You know, and so I'm feeling like, well, mm -hmm. this is not a match for me. I, I don't, I don't think like this. And sure enough, I'm sitting on the patio, you know, feeling all bummed out and stuff. And I get the call from the USDA and he said, you got the grant. I mean, I was crying. I was like, oh my God, I mean, this is amazing. And a couple of weeks later, I gave my notice <laughs> at, the, at the restaurant company. Oh, but for two reasons. One, because I wasn't happy. And, and they were, it doesn't matter how much they pay me, whatever they pay you, then you got to give them back. You know, that was my, my, my sure. partner at Lettuce said, hey, you can make whatever you want. But at the end of the year, we sit down with a pen and a paper and say, okay, I gave you this money. What did you give me? And that's fair. That's fair. And, and so I looked at it like, wow, they're giving me this money. I don't think I'm giving them everything that they can. Um, and, so, and, and I wasn't happy. <laughs> but I also felt very responsible, ultimately, for the taxpayers um, to create jobs with this money that they – number one, to create jobs with the money that I was being granted – and also to create something mm -hmm. for the community um, that I said I would create, which was clean food, clean pork, clean eggs, um, you know, honey out or whatever else. So that was in the beginning. Um, and so with that money, it was interesting. That was really to get the ground going. We had packaging, we did labeling, we were, you know, um, it, it wasn't free money. It was had to be for, for specific value-added um, processes. <clears throat> Great example. Yes. All of our meat now is vacuum packaged um, with our own label on it. Mm -hmm. But in the beginning, you know, when we were doing it, we couldn't afford it. We thought we couldn't afford it. And it was paper wrapped. I'm like, well, who the heck's going to pay, you know, $10 a pound for whatever, hamburger, I don't know what it was, it doesn't matter, or ground pork. Who's going to pay a dollar a pound for ground pork? You can't even see it. I wouldn't do mm -hmm. it. I want to know. So, we said, well, so the grant really allowed us to, okay, we'll do the vacuum packaging and we'll see its effect on sales. You know, it's a cause and effect thing. And sure enough, people loved it. They're, wow, look at that meat. I want that package. How do you get, I, now I look at, you know, paper wrapped pork. I'm like, I don't know how you, or paper wrapped steak. Why should it be mystery? You know, it shouldn't be a mystery. If, if, if they get a half a hog, they get paper wrapped. But for retail, that was a big thing we did with, with, with the grant was, is our value added, was our vacuum packaging. And, and just one of the many things that we did. Um, and then the second grant, which we just finished, I think, last year, um, was for the soup company. So it's a different task. I mean, that's another mm -hmm. important thing. I can't go back, you know, and, and, and for my second grant, I said, well, I want more money for, for packaging. You know, well, you just did packaging. I'm not going to give you money for that. So it's a new project. And it's a big project, this soup company. And it was just unbelievable timing um, because that was the start of the pandemic. When the demand for local food yeah. went through the roof, we tripled up tripled our sales, you know, in the beginning of the pandemic, and, and we grew another 10% this year. So the, the timing of that money was perfect because when everybody else in the grocery store says, I don't have food, or, you know, the, the food scare allowed us to create food for them with clean products and, and good tasting, good tasting, clean food, very important. And that's what they wanted, even more so. And we continue to still ride the wave. Um, and, and it's really, it's all about these grants. Big deal, big deal. I mean, it's, it's but 
you know, I had, you know, smaller farms come to me and say, oh, will you give me the name of my, your grant writer? I'm like, well, you know, if you have to be able to match the grant. That's very important. It's a matching grant. So if they give you 100000 then sure. you have to have 100000 in labor, whatever. There's a whole formula to go through of, of your yes. match, you know. Um, and so I think that's very important is that um, in this last grant, <clears throat> you know, I said to, to the grant writer, to Jim, I said, listen, you're, we're partners on this. You're going to get X amount and I get X amount. I said, we need to go for the max on this one. So whatever. And we didn't do the max, you know, but, but we were a much bigger company at that point. And so, you know, you can't go mm-hmm. in and you're doing $10 in sales and say, well, I can, I need a million dollar grant, you know, because I can match a million dollars. The numbers just don't work. It doesn't make sense. But we were at a point where we could ask for a much bigger support um, because we had a track record of, of you know, as a growing company. Um, and so yes, I think that's important, you know, you know, go for it when you're really ready for it. Maybe there's other, and that's what we did. You know, we, we got the, the micro loan you know, on a small farm, $35,000. At first you think, you know, cause I worked for a fancy restaurant company to open up $5 million restaurants. I'm like, Oh my God, what does $35,000 do? But when you have $35,000 <laughs> and you have to be creative, it's amazing how much $35,000 do. That was a big deal for us, that thirty-five grand. And so, it's, it's, you know, we bought, we didn't buy a brand new tractor. You know, we bought a used tractor, you know, because there's a lot of good used equipment out there. Um, and so you get really creative and, and, and careful with your money. You know, I'm very careful with our money. Very careful. You know, that's the hard thing about this business in general is you got to be careful with your money. There's not a lot of floating money around there. So... You really need to, to, you know, watch where you spend it. Do I really need it? And I learned a lot of that in the restaurant business. Restaurants can be tough, too, especially when you're – I did a lot of openings. You know, and, and, and any money that you borrow as a partner, you got to pay back. So you get very careful about and you don't and you don't start taking profits until the whole thing's paid off. And so you get very careful about, right. hey, do I really need this? Is this, is this going to make this store better? Um, and so that's how we look at it for the farm, too. Mark, you have articulated so many important lessons for farmers beginning or otherwise just in the course of this hour. And we're out of time. I got to I got to kind of leave it there. Uh, but thank you so much. I mean, the count everything, that inventory thing. Watch what you're doing. Be careful what you just mentioned just now. You can't take percentage to the bank, separating your production side of your company from your value-added and marketing side of the company. All this stuff is such important stuff for people who are growing their farm businesses into value-added food businesses to consider. So uh, we can't thank you enough for all that you have provided. And uh, anybody who wants to talk more about some of those pieces and their farm's financial life, we'd love it if you got in contact with the Food Finance Institute and myself, and we'd see if we can help you down that road. So once again, Mark, we appreciate you so very much for being with us for the podcast today. Absolute pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. You can get more podcasts by subscribing on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And you can learn more about Edible Alpha and the Food Finance Institute by visiting our website at ediblealpha.org. 